This is Deep Dive. I'm Su Yi. Last year, a herd of wild Asian elephants became global stars as they embarked on a long trip inside China's Yunnan province. But their stories did not stop here. Experts and conservationists say this trip was more than a cute exhibition of elephants cuddling and taking naps together. There were reasons why the animals decided to leave their homes for a long journey. The reasons are closely tied to nature and its biodiversity. Meanwhile, delegates of governments worldwide have been debating heatedly in Montreal, Canada, on the protection of biodiversity. For this, I spoke with CGTN reporter Tao Yuan. This episode is brought to you on Tuesday, December twentieth. So we're talking about、uh, the trip by Asian elephants、uh, in Xishuang Banna, Yunnan Province, in 2020. I'm curious, where are the Asian elephants now, and why did they start this journey in the first place? Well, they're now back at home at the Xishuang Banna National Nature Reserve. So they basically travel back to the nature reserve at the end of last year.、Uh, I was told that they still wander away from home sometimes, but not for too far and not for too long. And their protectors actually told me they also welcome some new members into the herd. So,、uh, as to your second question,、um, experts were also quite puzzled about this question as well. Why did they start this journey in the first place? But wild animals typically migrate for two reasons: one is to find food, and two is to avoid predators. In the case of this herd of Asian elephants, they have very few natural enemies out in the wild because of their sheer size. Which led many experts to believe that they started the journey because there just weren't enough food for them in their native habitat. And there are several facets to this explanation. First, their growing population. China is actually one of the few places in the world where、uh, the numbers of elephants are actually growing. Yunnan Province, their hometown, has seen the population of these Asian elephants nearly double over the past three decades. The number now stands at about 300. So there's greater competition for food, and at the same time, their habitat is growing increasingly fragmented. And and this is actually、uh, very tricky because if you look at the aerial photos of the region of the Xishuangbanna and Puar region. You see, it's actually covered in green. So you go like, there's forest here, right? But most of the green is actually cash crops, like rubber trees and tea trees, and not the virgin forest which sustains wildlife. One study actually found that in the past 40 years, forest coverage in the region shrunk by about 4,300 square kilometers, whereas the area of rubber trees grew, grew by 4,000 square kilometers and tea trees grew by more than 5,000 square kilometers. This study was led by Professor Zhang Li of Beijing Normal University, whom I interviewed last year for the Asian elephants. His team also estimated that the habitat of these Asian elephants actually shrunk by about 40% in the past four decades. So, when there's more individual elephants in less space where there's less food, it's not surprising why they wandered away in search of more suitable habitat. So Yunnan is a traditional habitat for Asian elephants, and it's not rare to see elephants travel. But what made this trip different and eye-catching? Well, you're right. Elephants are known to travel. So 
no one really batted an eye first when this particular herd first started their journey in 2020. So they started quite early, uh, long before they caught the eye of the public. But soon forestry experts, elephant experts realized that this was out of the ordinary because elephants don't usually travel this far and for this long. So by the time this herd, this particular herd swept the internet by storm, they had already been away from home for more than a year and had strayed hundreds of kilometers away from home. So people naturally scratched their heads and wondered why. And also along the way, they, they put on quite an epic show. You know, they, they broke into village homes. They wolfed down villagers' food. They gave birth on the way, took mud baths. They cuddled. They wreaked havoc on the streets. They cost millions of yuan in damage. It just it was just quite dramatic. And everywhere they went, you know, the people treated them with love and care, offering food and so on. And the elephants are a beloved animal in China. So people naturally worried about their safety as they reached colder parts of the province and closer and closer to human civilization. An emergency task force of tens of thousands of personnel helping them, guiding them, setting up food bait, tens of thousands of vehicles, drones. It was just, everything was just better than fiction. And it's just got all the ingredients of an internet sensation. Mm-hmm. Well, like you mentioned, uh, their habitat is shrinking, uh, but it also, I mean, it cost a lot during this trip. So what did this journey of the elephants tell us about our society and this relation with the environment? I think the elephants, by walking away from home, were unknowingly telling us about the plight that they were in. They were struggling to survive in their natural habitat. You know, human engineerings are increasingly blurring this line between the wilderness and civilization. And I think it's right for people to want to develop, to want to make more money and live better lives. You know, it's I think this is a trap that we easily fall into is for us outsiders who are only watching the action unfold to say, you know, we should protect these wild animals. We should build reserves, restore forests. And and yes, we should do all of that. But it's the local people who are making incredible sacrifices, whose properties got damaged, who got hurt, whose lives got threatened and, and even killed in human animal conflicts. And this is a global issue. It's not just an issue in China. It's how to balance nature and development. And and this is not just an issue for policymakers to think about. It's on all of us. A simple example, a third of the world's food actually goes to waste. That accounts for more than 3 billion tons of carbon emission every year. It also means that much of the natural land that we take from nature as farmland goes to waste. So this is something for us to think about. All species on Earth, except us, take from nature what they need to survive. But we take out of greed. I mean, we can still develop and make money and live better lives, but there are just simple ways to do it more sustainably and more responsibly. We can all do it. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, uh, why are Asian elephants so important to the province since, like you said, there are human-animal conflicts? 
Well, um, it's just a beloved animal, right? In China, it lives only in Yunnan, and it just sort of became an icon of the province, just like the giant panda became an icon for Sichuan province. The elephants, they've got sentimental values to the locals, cultural values, economic values. You know, people travel to Yunnan to see these elephants, so they boost tourism, right? Also, in conservation, there's what we call flagship species, which is basically star species that are chosen to raise awareness and support on conservation, on protection. And by protecting them, you protect their habitat and the other animals that share the same habitat. So the Asian elephant uh, is a flagship species. So in so many ways, they're an ambassador of Yunnan. So, talking about conservation efforts today,、uh, what is Yunnan planning、uh, to further promote their protection of the wild Asian elephants this year? Well, the most fundamental thing is, of course, to restore their natural habitat, but that's a long-term project. And at the same time, the province is also improving the quality of existing habitat. And strengthening the construction of a monitoring and early warning system to kind of minimize human-elephant conflicts. And on top of all of that, authorities are also fast-tracking this process of building an elephant national park. So, talking from the human side, we just talk about elephants destroy farmland during the trip. So,、mm-hmm. how will these farmers be compensated, or there is a solution that can ensure we protect both elephants? And the assets of local residents. Yeah, so there's an insurance program in place to compensate for the damage, and the amount of compensation is, of course, calculated and assessed based on the damage cost. And there's been plans to raise that compensation as well, and and partly because. The system is in place. Locals are usually quite、uh, friendly, and even maybe I could say indulging of these elephants. And and this is something that I found to be quite cute and quite heartwarming, is that this has really emboldened the animals. Locals actually told me that、uh, the situation is very much different in Southeast Asia. So in Myanmar and Thailand, Asian elephants tend not to go anywhere near human establishments because They know they're gonna get hurt,、mm-hmm. but in Yunnan province, they can just waltz in and just eat whatever is in the farmland to their heart's content. And not just in Yunnan with the elephants, the compensation system is also in other places where humans share the same habitat with wild animals or live very near to one another. On the Tibetan plateau, for example. Herdsmen also get paid for the loss of livestock to wild bears and wolves, and I actually think that this highlights a very beautiful thing about China's protected areas because most of them don't kick out the Aboriginal people for the purposes of protection.、Uh, you know, these people are part of their land. They live there all their lives. Their ancestors live there all their lives. Their ancestors, ancestors. Especially the Tibetans, they they have this great respect for nature, and they they're used to this kind of human-animal conflict. They see it as part of the natural cycle. Their ancestors dealt with it; they deal with it. That kind of conflict is, of course, becoming more pronounced right now, thanks to again increasing animal population, decreasing habitat. But I think the compensation scheme, the insurance scheme, is really keeping things in control, at least for the short term.
So this time, uh, the elephants also got a lot of attention from around the world. Uh, many foreign media outlets also covered this trip. Uh, why did they focus so much on these elephants in China? Well, who doesn't like a good epic story, right?、Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think also China's handling of this story, the care and love again that was put into helping this herd, it was a very non-intrusive approach. And you know, if this good story also happens to make people think about our relationship with nature and our role on this planet, then what's there to not like about it, right?、Mm-hmm. We know this long journey、uh, lasted for about one and a half years. The elephants reached their destination about two months before the first phase of the UN Biodiversity Conference in Kunming last year.、Uh, they happened in the same province. So, how was this journey talked about at COP15? So,、um, the first phase of COP15 was held in Kunming, which is the provincial capital of Yunnan. I remember a short film about the journey of these elephants aired on the opening ceremony. And there were also many parallel forums, and some of them featured elephant experts and and protectors. I knew, but you know, unfortunately, these parallel meetings were happening all at the same time, and we couldn't be there for all of them. But I would guess that many of the issues highlighted by the wandering elephants that we talked about were discussed, as as there are also major factors contributing to the loss of biodiversity worldwide. So as we said before, human encroachment, loss of habitat,、uh, balance between development and conservation, the impact of climate change. The main goal of COP15 is to hammer out this biodiversity protection plan called the Post 2020 Global Biodiversity Framework. And the issues that we talked about just now are basically all issues that the framework is trying to address. I'm curious,、uh, compare with conferences like COP27. Which address climate change, temperature, global warming. This COP15、mm-hmm. convention did not get as much attention before.、Uh, what, what do you think is the case? Well, you're absolutely right. Quite sadly, and I think it's mainly because the impacts of climate change are already felt and felt hard. You know, the droughts, the floods. Sea levels rising, deadly heat waves. People are dying as a direct result of climate, and we all watch horrendous footages on the news. On the other hand, though, the effects of biodiversity loss are more subtle. Another thing is that the climate conference has set out very catchy, very clear goals. You know, the 1.5 degree goal, which we've all heard of by now. Basically, limit our warming to 1.5 degrees, or we all go to hell, is what it's saying, right? And and that's powerful. That just sticks with people. I think biodiversity is catching up in that regard. They're realizing they need concrete, measurable targets with numerical aspects to it in order for countries and parties to follow and review. It's what they call transparency and responsibility. So for COP15 this year, one of the targets that received the most attention is one that's called the 30 by 30 target, protecting 30% of the world's land and sea by 2030, and that's catchy.、Uh, that's sort of like the biodiversity equivalent of the 1.5 degree goal in climate. But COP27, COP15, climate and biodiversity, really one shouldn't overshadow the other, as the two issues are intertwined and some of their solutions overlap.、Uh, 
I remember reading somewhere, but I can't remember exactly where, but I thought it was a very accurate metaphor. It says that climate change and biodiversity are like having a dead battery and a flat tire at the same time. You're not going to hit the road going again by fixing just one of these problems. How are they planning to achieve these goals, these biodiversity goals for countries like here in China? Many of the problems and challenges that China is facing are actually shared by many other countries. So this is not something that one country alone can achieve. China certainly has made great strides in nature protection and biodiversity. It's put climate and environment at the center of its policymaking. Ecological civilization is in China's constitution. But, you know, the last time the world came together and made such an ambitious plan to protect biodiversity was back in 2010 during the COP10 in Aichi, Japan. So the targets made back then were called the Aichi targets. But an evaluation in 2020 basically concluded that we had failed to fully reach any of the 20 Aichi targets. So I think what's more important is about implementation you know, you can make all the ambitious goals and plans you want, but if you don't implement them, then they're just a piece of paper. Is for the rest of the world to work together and to make sure that the targets are actually worth the paper that they're written on. Thank you very much, Tao Yuan. Thank you. Negotiators at UN Biodiversity Conference COP15 have reached a global agreement to protect a significant percentage of the world's lands and waters. The framework is aimed at reversing biodiversity loss and setting the world on path of recovery. It preserves the marquee goal of ensuring that 30% of terrestrial, inland water, and coastal and marine areas be effectively conserved by 2030. It also includes a commitment to mobilize at least 200 billion US dollars per year from both public and private sources to finance nature. And that brings us to the end of this episode of Deep Dive. For more episodes, please follow our show. If you want to share what you think of the show and also other things that matters to the world, please leave comments on your podcast platform. This episode is brought to you by me, Sui and my colleagues Fei Fei and Zhang Zhang. Special thanks to CGTN reporter Tao Yuan. I will see you next time.